Hello and welcome to Sound Strategic. I'm James Crabtree, Executive Director of the IISS Asia here in Singapore, and today's guest host standing in for our usual host, Maya Noens. In this episode, we will be discussing the themes and topics of the upcoming Shangri-La Dialogue, which will be held here in Singapore between the 10th and 12th of June in just a few days' time. To discuss this, I'm joined by my colleague, Maya Noens, the normal co-host, IISS Senior Fellow for Chinese Defense Policy and Military Modernization, and my colleague, Aaron Connolly, Senior Fellow for Southeast Asian Politics and Foreign Policy. Welcome, Maya, and welcome, Aaron. Maya, you've been to the Shangri-La Dialogue many times before. Some of our listeners today might have no idea what the event is or what it's like to go to it. Can you paint a picture of what it's like to walk into the Shangri-La Hotel on that weekend? Who do you find there and, and what's it like? Sure. I mean, in one word, I think it's busy. It's a hub of activity that never really ends. Walking into the lobby, you'll see everything from high-ranking officials and ministers from countries across the region, uh, as well as beyond, to other working-level officials, think tankers, uh, media personalities, all talking, mixing, sharing ideas, takes from the plenaries, but also, of course, the side events that happen alongside the plenary sessions, where some more off-the-record and uh, frank discussions are held. Aaron, what about you? You've been to a number of these before. What, what are your impressions, just for people who've never been May have nailed it. It is shocking how busy the, the, the lobby of the Shangri-La Dialogue is for those 48 hours plus. The really interesting part of the dialogue for me is always the special sessions. The, the plenary sessions, you know, have multiple defense ministers speaking. The special sessions, which are held off to the side of the main ballroom, are usually a little bit more frank and a little bit more candid between the, the participants. And so sometimes that's where the fireworks happen, uh, if, if that's the case, or really interesting conversations between parties that might normally be at odds, but actually see eye to eye on surprising issues. So the Shangri-La Dialogue invites more than a couple of dozen defense ministers into this hotel for the weekend to, to give speeches and have meetings with one another. I think it would be fair to say that the main theme every year is the relationship between the United States and China. So let's dive into that. Mayor, we know that General Wei Fenghe, the defense minister of China, will give a speech at the dialogue. What do you expect him to say and, and where are we at from the Chinese side with relations between the two superpowers? I think relations between the two superpowers at the moment are continuing uh, on the downward trajectory that we've seen in the past. There's been a little bit of an uplift since the last two years in terms of the defense ministers actually speaking over the phone. We predict that that will happen again this year. Uh, in conversations. But I think from um, Beijing's perspective, this is an opportunity for Beijing and for General Wei to promote China's perspective for regional security, but also to perhaps paint China in a more positive light after two years of COVID wolf warrior diplomacy and, and other actions within the region that have painted China in a little bit more negative light. I think this will be an opportunity for China to put forth perhaps a narrative that countries are unfairly ganging up on it, um, that other countries are, in particular, of course, the United States and its allies forming groupings that are destabilizing the region further, and that China opposes that instability. Aaron, what about from the American side? This will be the first Shangri-La dialogue at which Lloyd Austin will be speaking in the first plenary session. By tradition, that's how the conference opens on the Saturday. What do you expect Austin to try and do in, in his speech? And again, where are the Americans at on their approach to the Indo-Pacific? Well, it's a challenging spot for Lloyd Austin. He has to do several things at once. There are multiple audiences in the room and around the world. 
he'll have to try to reassure U.S. allies that it can deter aggression from the PRC. There's been a lot of talk about China's plans for Taiwan recently, and I, I can let Maya speak more about that later. But Japan, Australia, the Philippines will all be looking for that reassurance. At the same time, he has to convince other Southeast Asian countries that the United States is not spoiling for a fight, that it doesn't want conflict in the region, and that it wants to play a constructive, positive role of shaping the regional security environment and providing public goods. And so to do both of those things at the same time is challenging. And then, of course, he has a third audience, which is back in Washington. Normally, we'd have some members of Congress in the room. They'll be in session this year, but they'll be listening very intently to what he has to say. And he'll almost certainly be asked about it at his next oversight hearings. And they'll want to know what he's doing to actually put resources behind the reassurance that he intends to provide to U.S. allies. And so to do all those three things at the same time is a very challenging, very challenging gig for him. Mayor, some of listeners to Sound Strategic are probably quite familiar with Lloyd Austin. Uh, we did a lecture with him last year at the IISS, which we discussed on this podcast. Our listeners may be slightly less familiar with General Wei Feng on the Chinese side. Could you tell um, us a little bit about him? Sure. So General Wei, I think we have to understand, is uh, he's the Minister of Defense for China. In his role, he really is the public face of People's Liberation Army and of the military wing of the Chinese Communist Party. We have to remember that the PLA is the party's army, not necessarily the country's army. Though he has a high diplomatic position, he doesn't actually have much power within the People's Liberation Army. And so General Wei's remarks are usually quite scripted, limited in what he can say, and aren't necessarily weighty as those perhaps of General Lloyd Austin in the sense that what he says is a reflection of what's already been decided, not necessarily in terms of his decision-making power within the PLA. In that sense, we should see him as very much a, a figurehead but not necessarily a decision maker in and of itself. Aaron, just on the back and forth between the, the US and China, one of the interesting things about the dialogue is the, the reaction between the two speeches. The US Defense Secretary speaks on Saturday morning, the Chinese Defense Secretary on Sunday morning. You've watched a number of these exchanges and they do often become exchanges. Could you say a little bit about that, what people are watching for and the ordering of the speeches? Yeah, absolutely. So the United States Secretary of Defense is usually the second speaker at the dialogue after the keynote address on Friday night. And that gives him an opportunity to set the tone and set the stage for the dialogue. A very conflictual speech by the U.S. Secretary of Defense, in one case during the Obama administration, prompted a rewrite from the Chinese representative speaking the next day. That will probably have some influence on what the Chinese decide to say on Sunday morning. But it also sets the tone for the rest of the plenary sessions as well. Others in Southeast Asia and Japan, Australia, and in Europe will take some cues from the tone of, of the speech that's given on Saturday morning. In previous years, during the Obama administration, secretaries of defense would sometimes give a more sharply worded speech in the United States first, before then flying to Shangri-La and delivering a, a slightly softer touch version of the same speech. I don't know if that will happen this year, whether Lloyd Austin intends to deliver a harder speech in the United States before flying out. But in recent years, they have combined the two speeches and tried to you know, speak to those multiple audiences in the same speech. And I would uh, imagine there will be some, as I said earlier, that's really the challenge for Lloyd Austin, because everyone has the text of every speech. Everyone listens to every speech. It's not really possible to give a speech at uh, one of the service academies in the U.S. and then fly out to Singapore 
and expect that only Americans will listen to the speech in the U.S. and, and only Asians will listen to the speech in Singapore. Uh, so I think they'll probably try to combine the two. Aaron, let me stick with you. Many of our listeners on Sound Strategic will have spent a lot of time over the last couple of months thinking about the war in Ukraine. Indeed, we've also discussed that at length on this podcast. How do you think the shadow of Ukraine is going to be reflected in the dialogue, in the speeches of ministers from the Asia-Pacific region predominantly? It's a very different context out here compared to in Europe. And so at Davos, which was just held in, in Switzerland, or at the Munich Security Conference, which was held just prior to the outbreak of war in Europe in February, the atmosphere would have been very different and the context would have been very different. Most Southeast Asian countries have sought to avoid choosing sides in the conflict in Ukraine. They've issued statements supporting Ukraine's uh, territorial integrity, political independence and sovereignty, but they've very few of them have named the party that is actually invading Ukraine. And so, you know, one question for the U.S. and its allies, Japan, which has been very supportive of a strong stance on the conflict in Ukraine, is how they phrase, how they talk about Ukraine in this part of the world. There are a number of countries in this region that are hurting as a result of the increase in fuel prices and food prices, and that have fiscal concerns as a result of those. Uh, we see that in Sri Lanka, for instance. That, on top of other concerns, led to an, you know, an outbreak of domestic un unrest. Uh, we see other countries in the region concerned that they may be headed in the same direction. So it is a very active concern in this part of the world, but it's, it's just seen very differently than it's seen in Europe. And how the United States and Europeans talk about the conflict in this region might have to change as a result. Mayor, could you talk about this perhaps from the Chinese side? There has been a lot of commentary about the way that the war in Ukraine has solidified the partnership between China and Russia in particular, following the document that they produced on February 4th, the Partnership Without Limits document. So do you think that the events in Ukraine will affect Chinese participation in the dialogue in any way? Or how does it look from that side of things? Well, I think in terms of China's participation in the dialogue, the real framing context that we need to keep in mind is that this year, the year of the 20th Party Congress in Beijing and everything, I think, will be seen through a lens of needing to show both strength, but also stability back home in China. With regards to Ukraine and, and the relationship with Russia, China has been on the receiving end of quite a lot of criticism for its stance over not criticizing Russia and trying to play in some ways a balancing act between its relationship with Russia and Ukraine, not necessarily successfully. So I think in terms of how this impacts China's position in the dialogue, I think there'll be a effort perhaps to show regional security in the Indo-Pacific and the Euro-Atlantic aren't necessarily as linked as we think they are. Also discussing um, from China's perspective its own security threats or its own threat perceptions, rather, in the same way that it consistently states that Russia's actions were motivated by heightened threat perceptions due to NATO's activity on its borders or closer to its borders. So I think in that sense, there'll be a little bit of a difficult position for China to both say that what happens in Europe is Europe's concern, but on the other hand, also trying to say that parallels can't necessarily be drawn between the Indo-Pacific and the Euro-Atlantic at the same time. 
Let's talk a little bit about the other countries who are at the dialogue. So the US and China get a lot of attention, but we have, as I say, more than two dozen defense ministers, and a number of them are drawn from the regional middle powers, from Australia, Japan, the Philippines, Aaron mentioned the Southeast Asian countries. This is the first Shangri-La dialogue since the re-emergence of the Quad as a leader-level regional grouping, and also since AUKUS was announced um, in the autumn of last year. Aaron, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Uh, you follow Australia pretty closely and also um, look at the US uh, groupings around the region. How do you think that will affect the discussion that we have this year? Right. So, you know, I think for this part of the world, the conflict in Ukraine is regarded as, you know, a tragedy, sometimes in a more cynical terms, as a, a kind of annoyance. It, it has real consequences for this part of the world, but it's not their top concern. It's been a wrench in the works for three Southeast Asian countries that are hosting big multilateral summits later this year, Cambodia with the East Asia Summit, Thailand with APEC, and Indonesia with the G20. But their real concern, these countries in Southeast Asia, and I think the Asia Pacific more generally, their real concern remains the possibility of conflict between the United States and China, and the possibility of economic decoupling or you know, partial decoupling between the United States and China. And so that will be a focus for them. And then there are some more localized conflicts in this part of the world that I think will garner more attention. For those of us who are resident here in Southeast Asia, it's still very difficult to avoid news about the conflict in Myanmar. It's still a top priority for foreign ministries in the region, and it's the only active conflict in the region with geopolitical implications. And so I would expect that to be a focus as well. Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loong here in Singapore is sometimes fond of saying that the most important bilateral relationship for Singapore is the US-China bilateral relationship. And when that relationship isn't good, uh, that causes real concern in Southeast Asia. And so I expect even Southeast Asian countries will be very focused on that relationship. Mayor, do you have anything to add on the, in a sense, the US allies and partners? One of the things that you see at the Shangri-La Dialogue is that you have the US Defense Secretary who speak first, but then there are a good number of countries who are either allies or close friends of the US who also speak at the dialogue. And that tends to be an element of singing from the same hymn sheet. Uh, what do you expect to hear from the likes of Japan or Australia uh, this year? I think a reflection of what we've seen happen over the last few years, which is greater coordination and collaboration on regional initiatives, bilateral or trilateral initiatives, in order to bolster that rules-based international order within the Indo-Pacific. That, I think, is going to be a large talking point for many of these countries in this year's Shangri-La Dialogue. Aaron, you wanted to come back in. It's worth noting that when we last held the Shangri-La Dialogue in 2019, there was a kind of incipient effort by the Trump administration and uh, Abe Shinzo in Japan, Narendra Modi in India, and the coalition government that's just left office in Australia to put the Quad back together, having dissipated after 2007. Not a lot came of that during the Trump administration's term in office, but when the Biden folks came into office, it really took off. And it took off in a kind of different direction than I think many people had, had expected or hoped. It's more focused on providing these public goods to the region and less focused on providing a real balancing coalition against China. And so there are real questions as to whether or not the Quad can do either of these things well. The vaccine initiative that was announced by the Quad last year was slow to get off the ground. It didn't have the impact that I think the partners would have hoped. And it has yet to really do the hard balancing in the defense space that is its real promise for the Quad partners. And finally, there are real concerns among Southeast Asian countries about 
the effect that the Quad will have on the regional security environment. They don't want it to exacerbate tensions between the U.S. and China in particular. And they also are concerned that if it's engaged in all, providing all these public goods, then why can't those public goods be provided in more inclusive forms? And, and China has used that particular line of attack against the Quad to great effect in Southeast Asia. So one thing to watch at this year's Shangri-La Dialogue is how those debates play out between the United States and China. Does the United States mention the Quad? When Narendra Modi came to give the, the keynote address at Shangri-La in 2018, he did not mention the Quad, even though it was clearly something that was on the mind of Prime Minister Modi and, and his team. Does Lloyd Austin mention it? How does he frame how the, how the Quad will respond to regional security challenges? And how do others at the dialogue respond to it? How do, say, the Malaysians or the Singaporeans or the Indonesians, do they speak about the Quad or do they sort of take a, assume a watching brief and wait for it to develop further? I think that's, uh, that'll be one thing to watch. Mayo? Maybe if I can just add on to that, I mean, quad and AUKUS aside, I'd be interested to see how Europeans discuss uh, their interest in the Indo-Pacific this year. The last two years, we've seen a number of Indo-Pacific strategies published by not just the European Union, but member states, as well as the United Kingdom. Ongoing security concerns in the Euro-Atlantic following um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think there is a question as to how countries in Europe are going to be able to balance security needs at home with their stated interests in playing a security, but also, you know, a wider role uh, of engagement in the Indo-Pacific. So how is that still possible? To what extent is, has that changed uh, post-Ukraine? And how are they going to reflect that in their uh, engagement in the uh, Shangri-La Dialogue? I would just think that's exactly right. At the last several Shangri-La dialogues before the pandemic, we saw a number of European countries come out to Singapore and pledge greater investment, a greater commitment to East Asia. And they had a number of different terms for this, whether it was a framework or a tilt. But the bare minimum in terms of commitment to the region is showing up at a big regional defense conference like this. Hillary Clinton was fond of quoting Woody Allen and saying that uh, half of life is showing up. And that was the United States approach during its pivot under the Obama administration. If the European partners can't show up, if they are distracted, as this region would see it, by the conflict in Ukraine, I think Europeans might see that very differently. But if they are seen as being distracted by the conflict in Ukraine, I think that will have an effect on how those policy initiatives are seen in this part of the world. May I just say a little bit more about AUKUS? Um, I mean, it was big news when it happened last year. You will have the, the US, Australia, the UK represented at the dialogue in one, one form or another. This is part of a, a wider change around the region to proliferation of minilateral security groupings. Just say a little bit more about that. What's interesting with AUKUS is, of course, not just the impact that it had, I suppose, on European responses to this, not just Chinese responses and criticisms of AUKUS, but we had a, a significant impact for a while following the announcement on UK-Europe relations, and which raised questions on whether the UK and European member states could continue to cooperate in a meaningful way in the Indo-Pacific. I think we've moved past that now, and we see that actually there is a going to be greater coordination, cooperation, and that this was a diplomatic stumbling block, but one that can be overcome. I think in terms of China's response, I think this is seen as another example of uh, coordination against China rather than coordination amongst three like-minded states for bolstering, as they say, the rules-based international order. 
A lot of focus, of course, was placed on um, the submarine deal within AUKUS. But what I find more interesting and what I'll be watching play out over the next few years is the other aspects that were mentioned within AUKUS. And that was collaboration and cooperation on innovation uh, and research and development with regards to emerging and disruptive technologies between the three countries. And now also, um, I think we can count Japan into that as well. I think that's a much more important important and more dynamic part of the agreement and one that will be of uh, equal concern, I think, from Beijing's perspective in terms of Beijing's own ambitions to become a leader in some of these technological areas as well. Aaron, earlier you mentioned Southeast Asia. The dialogue is based in Singapore and and we have a large number of Southeast Asian defense ministers at the dialogue. Uh, There's a question that people ask about the extent to which ASEAN as a grouping is finding itself eclipsed by these new groupings around the the region, the Quad and AUKUS and, and that kind of thing. Can you say a little bit more about that and what we can expect to hear from some of the Southeast Asian ministers about their own region? Sure. You know, we'll have the majority of the Southeast Asian defense ministers in the room speaking at the dialogue. And although the dialogue is not itself an ASEAN institution, it kind of serves as a substitute for one on occasion. ASEAN really is a fact of life. It's where the geopolitics happen in Southeast Asia. You know, whether it was in 2010, memorably, Chinese State Councillor Yang Jiexie saying to Singapore Foreign Minister George Yeo that small countries are small countries and big countries are big countries, and that's just a fact. Uh, which was really a remark that presaged China's island building in the South China Sea. The decision in 2012 by Cambodia, when it was acting as ASEAN chair, to prevent the issuance of a joint communique for the first time in ASEAN's history, that really presaged Cambodia moving much more solidly into Beijing's camp within the region. And so we often see trends emerging in the geopolitics in the region through what we can observe from ASEAN, from diplomacy at, at ASEAN institutions and indeed at the Shangri-La Dialogue as well. People sometimes don't like the, uh, the concept of ASEAN centrality. They feel like ASEAN is not playing a particularly active role in regional affairs. But when we talk about ASEAN centrality, what we really mean is the fact that it plays this kind of central role in the diplomatic architecture. Uh, the fact that even if ASEAN is not driving the geopolitics in the region, ASEAN is where the geopolitics happen. And so uh, I would expect it to be uh, name-checked by a number of ministers, especially respect for ASEAN centrality, I am sure that we'll hear that from uh, the U.S. Secretary of Defense and from Chinese Defense Minister Wei Fenghe. But I think we'll also see it discussed uh, more broadly by the Southeast Asian defense ministers and and some of the challenges to that centrality. And, and Myanmar, for instance, is one of those challenges, You know how it deals with some of these challenges, not just AUKUS, but also these internal challenges like Myanmar. Aaron, so say a little bit more as a final question about Myanmar and um, those listening then go on the IISS website, and if you choose to, you can have a look at the outline agenda so you can see the list of all of the topics that will be discussed at the dialogue. And as Aaron mentioned, we have three what are called special sessions, one of which is on Myanmar. Um, Aaron will be chairing that session. So say a little about that, Aaron, and how we have tried to reflect that trouble spot in the region in our program this year. Well, there are really different views within the region and and more broadly uh, in the international community on the conflict in Myanmar. We have tried to craft a balanced panel that will bring together those different perspectives and also invited a large number of non-government representatives from Myanmar to the dialogue. So they will be in a position to ask questions of these government representatives from around the world, most of whom are acting in a kind of special envoy role with the responsibility for Myanmar, as to, you know, what the path forward is. The conflict at the moment looks intractable. Violence affects the entire country uh, at this stage. 
And so there's a real struggle within the international community to find a way forward and to agree on a path forward to come to some kind of consensus. Uh, and we hope that uh, the Shangri-La Dialogue will help to play a role in, in forging that new consensus. And that's all we've got time for. So thank you very much to Maya in the United Kingdom and Aaron here in Singapore. And thank you all for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For live coverage and in-depth analysis of the Shangri-La Dialogue as it is going on, you can follow the IISS on Twitter or LinkedIn or visit the IISS website. Or indeed, you can watch the Shangri-La Dialogue as it's happening uh, on YouTube on the IISS uh, YouTube channel. You can find more information in our show notes. As usual, please do follow, rate, and subscribe to Sound Strategic wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts to keep you up to date with all of the latest episodes. Many thanks for listening and see you next time.